In this episode of The Evolving Leader, we're joined by the psychologist Professor Linda Grattan, who's written 10 books reflecting her passionate interest in people and organizations. Recently, she published in record time, Redesigning Work, a design methodology for rethinking organizations as huge shifts in our relationship with work continue, hastened by the pandemic. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the Evolving Leader podcast. I'm Scott Allender. And I'm John Gomes. How are you feeling today, my friend? I am feeling, well, how can I say it? I've been reading our guest books for uh, since I started my career, so I'm feeling very excited. How are you feeling, Scott? Uh, I'm feeling intrigued and energized for today because I've been really looking forward to this discussion. Because today we're delighted to be joined by Professor Linda Grattan, academic, writer, and thought leader. As a professor of management practice at London Business School, she designed the Human Resource Strategy and Transforming Companies program, which she since led for over 20 years. It is considered one of the world's leading programs on people and organizations. She's written 10 books that explore the changing relationship between people strategy and business performance. Most have gained awards, and all have gained critical acclaim. She's also a fellow of the World Economic Forum. There's much more we could say about her accomplishments, but let's stop there and just say, Professor Grattan, welcome to The Evolving Leader. Thank you so much for inviting me. I feel great about having a conversation with you today. That's really good to hear. Um, You are very well known as a thought leader on the future of work. But for those listeners who may not be so familiar with you and your work, can you give us a pen portrait of your career and the key areas of your focus? Sure, happy to do that. I have um, a degree and a PhD in psychology. So really, my focus has always been on people. But I think during my degree and during my PhD, I worked to support myself, as many of us did. And for me, that was in assembly lines in a factory, and it was as a waitress. And, you know, I think that really got me interested in work and looking at assembly lines and thinking, really? Um, is this how we're working? And the same with, you know, being a waitress. And so from then on, really, I focused on work. First of all, in a consulting practice in British Airways as chief psychologist, and then for the last 30 years as a professor at the London Business School. And so I focus on that. I teach a a wonderful uh, program to my MBA students called The Future of Work, where I help them think about the next 10 years of their life. And I also founded and run an advisory company called HSM, and that works right across the world with... uh, companies, particularly in Japan, Australia, China, um, and Europe. So uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful way of really looking at what does work mean. And of course, during the pandemic, many of the things I'd hoped, more flexibility, more autonomy, began to come to fruition. So my mission, which is why I'm so glad I'm talking to you guys, my mission is to make sure we don't go back to where we were. Hmm. So you've been long focused on the convergence of technological and demographic and societal forces and how they're changing work. And you mentioned how the pandemic has accelerated change. What, what's your assessment of what's going on currently in, in the workplace and, and what you're seeing? Well, well thanks, Scott, because I, I think you're right to sort of talk about what happened before the pandemic. Um, many of the books that I've written have been about the forces that change our world. I, I wrote The Shift, which looked at them 
together. And then I picked off various ones. Andrew Scott and I wrote a piece on demography in a book called The Hundred Year Life. And I think in all of these things, what we're beginning to, what I noticed is that, you know, if you live to 100, as some of us will, and if you live at a time of extraordinary technological change, as all of us are, and at the same time, you have complex and evolving family structures, which I certainly have, it does mean that the sort of old ways of working just really aren't going to work. And, and I saw those fractures long before the pandemic, and I'd written about them and worried that actually we were creating ways of working, which was difficult for parents. Um, I didn't think we were making as much as we could of this amazing technology that we have in place. So, Scott, where I am now in terms of the pandemic is, for me, the pandemic was the beginning of an unfreeze. Uh, and by that, I mean, I think before then, most companies, although they tried to change around the edges, I didn't really see companies really changing the way that they worked. Yeah. So I would say that was the freeze, to use that Kurt Lewin phrase. I think what's happened during the pandemic is we've seen a real unfreeze. And by that, I mean, people changed their habits. You know, they didn't get into a suit every day and they didn't get into a commuting train every day. They learned new skills. They actually learned how to use all this technology that they Here am I in a home studio. Who would have known I could have done that? But also... I think they really changed their aspirations. Psychologists use this term possible selves as a way of thinking, you know, as you look into the future, what could you possibly be? What is your possible self? And frankly, most of us are so busy running up, up and down to work. We don't really have time to think about what could we be. But actually, the two years, and this is an astonishing thing, isn't it? It's now two years. That two years gave a lot of people an opportunity to think about what they really want. And so I think we're now in the refreeze. Uh, this is the point at which uh, people are saying, do I want to go back to the company that I was at? And as you know, with the great resignation, quite a lot of them are saying no. And at the same time, CEOs are saying from, you know, the investment banker CEO who says, I want everybody back in the office to the CEO of Airbnb I was with last week who said, you don't have to come back at all to the office. Now, that's a that's setting up a great debate really about mm -hmm. for every leader to ask well, what what do I want given that there's so many choices so Scott right now I see it as a time of extraordinary experimentation a lot of choices but I do see the refreeze happening and I think it's a time when leaders need to and to talk about their narrative of the future they need to really understand what the purpose is and I think it's also a great time for employees to ask themselves What's really important to me now? Mm. And I think that uh, unfreeze unlocked imagination. People don't have any time to think about what that, that uh, future self could look like or the future organization. But in your latest work, Redesigning Work, you take us through four steps you believe organizations need to make to make the most of that global shift. Can you take us through those? Well, th thanks for... for, for, for mentioning that actually and, and I just want to Jean just stand back and talk about why I did that and actually it was a really interesting comment I was interviewed at the very beginning of COVID by quite a well-known journalist actually and he said to me Linda um, could you just list the best practices that companies now have to do and in response to that question I realized that I would be doing him a great disservice if I said 
here is the best practice that every company needs to do. Because what I realized is that this was a chance for companies to build their own signature, to actually say, you know, this is this is what we are. And and uh, in the book, I I take my I bring the analogy back to the T Ford. You know, when when the Ford company uh, car was initially made, you could only buy it in one model, a T Ford, and it could only be one color, black. And it was only after consumers wanted different things and the factory could make different things. Like we saw this enormous variety that we're seeing now. And, you know, Jean, I got the f- sense that that variety is now happening, that actually consumers, we, the employees, are asking ourselves, actually, we, we do want different things. And at the same time, technology particularly is giving us some of the basic foundational tools to build a more flexible way of life. So the reason that I said, here's a four stage, is rather than saying, this is the best practice everybody has to do. You know, everybody has to get everybody back to work or everybody's got to say um, you can work anywhere you want or whatever it is, you've got to find your own way. And to do that, I suggested a design cycle. So any of our listeners who are familiar with design or like systems thinking as I do, when you hear this four stage, you'll go, oh yeah, I know that. That's a design four stage. And indeed it is. So you won't be surprised that it starts with understanding And I feel right now we need to understand uh, jobs. We really need to understand how, what is, what do I need to do in this job to to be as productive as possible? So I actually start with the jobs, not with people. But the second question is, what is it that you as an individual want? And then the third is about networks. So that's the the question of understand. And then there's this marvellous period of reimagining. And I think that's where we are at the moment, where you're asking yourself, well, perhaps we could have a four-day week, or perhaps we could live anywhere we want for three months a year, or perhaps we could take sabbaticals, or perhaps we could, you know, do role share or bring our dogs to I mean, whatever we want to do. And this is a huge period of reimagination. But then I think the hard questions of modeling and testing comes in. That's the third stage, where really you're asking, is this really going to help us build the business that we want, this new way of working, and testing it against big principles like, um, is it going to increase our customer satisfaction? Uh, Is it going to help people stay engaged? Is it fair and just? I think that's a really important question. And then the final part of this four-stage process, again, no surprises, is about actually actioning. How do you get this stuff working? And there, we've seen that there are three really important groups. Uh, First, of course, is the leaders themselves in terms of what they're saying and how they're role modeling uh, what they think the future should be and how they think work should be designed. The second is managers, which let's face it, were often seen as the frozen middle, but now are seen as rather the heroes of the pandemic. We know from data, particularly from the tech companies, that where teams did really well during the pandemic. It was often because the manager was empathic. They listened to them. uh, They had one-to-ones with them. So the manager is really coming out as the hero of the pandemic. So we have to help and support them. And of course, finally, it's employees themselves. What do they want? How do you engage them? So rather than coming to a final point and saying, this is how you do it, what I'm suggesting is we all go through this process of learning for ourselves What's best for my company? That's really rich. There's there's so much to unpack in there. Um, I'm curious who who you're seeing getting this right because pre pandemic, 
I feel like there was a lot of assumptions, right, that can't use the technology we have, as you alluded to, to work in a hybrid way or work at home effectively. And then three months in, I saw companies declare, we're never going to have an office again, right? No experimentation whatsoever, just we could save money, everything's working. But this reimagining and this testing and to try to get it right in a way that's fair and equitable for everybody, how do we do that well? Or, or let me come back to my original question. Who do you see that's doing that really well? Well, I think it's, you know, again, Scott, I'm going to sort of push back on that because it's, it's, it's hard to say at this stage whether they're doing it well or not. I mean, I mm. think about this as sort of series two, episode three. And uh, there's probably a, a lot more episodes to come and there might be a few more series as well. So I think it's too early to come to a judgment of that. You know, one of the questions I've been asked is, here's Goldman or, or, or any of the major investment banks now saying we want everybody back in the, in the office full time. And here's the founder of Airbnb saying you never have to come back into the office. So the question could be, Scott, who is right? Well, it, it depends on what it is they want. So, you know, if we say that those Goldman jobs are jobs where being together in a cooperative way, sharing insights, uh, solving client problems is best done face to face, and that's a judgment call, then it probably means that being in the office is an important part of that job. But there are consequences and trade-offs there. So the most obvious trade-off is that if you think about all the highly skilled people in the world, some of them don't mind about flexibility and some of them really care. They really want more flexibility in terms of place and time. And it, so if you say you've got to be in the office all the time, that's minimum flexibility. So you're only going to get that proportion of highly skilled people and highly talented people who also have that attitude. And so the question I would ask of that is twofold. One is, um, there's a lot of talent you're leaving on the table there who want flexibility. And the second is, what sort of people are they? Because I suspect it's a very homogenous group. So, you know, Scott, I think, and similarly with Airbnb, um, saying, well, we, you know, we, we don't need anyone back in the office again. There are companies, and I talk about one in um, redesigning work. I talk about Artemis Connection, which is a strategy group who are entirely virtual and have, have been pretty successful entirely virtually, were, were actually built as a virtual company. So that's possible. But what what they've learned, in fact, I was talking to the founder only this morning, is that they have to be much more intentional about induction, about coaching, about, you know, all the socializing, all the things that we think are really important. So so the trade-off for Airbnb is if you have everybody working from their home or what he would prefer, which is an Airbnb uh, place, then how do you pull them together? How do you get any sense of shared community? So I think, Scott, you know, the answer to the question, who's doing it best is, well, the person who's doing it best is the company that's aligning their ways of working with their purpose and who's mm -hmm. doing that in a way that pushes it right through from what it is leaders are saying right through to what it is that employees are experiencing. And my job as an academic and as an observer is basically to observe and write about and all of these experiments I'm doing. And I, I wrote about them in uh, redesigning work. That's why I was so keen to get that, to write that book and get it out as it came out, you know, in March, because I had a feeling that 
this was going to be a time of refreeze. And I also have a column in MIT Sloan, which again is a great opportunity for me just to highlight things and say, wow, isn't it interesting? Here's CPM, CPP Investment, one of the Canadian pension investors saying, you can work anywhere you want for three months a year. Or there's Unilever saying, oh, guess what? You can, you can work with us and, and have a contract, but you don't have to work with us full time. We'll pay you a minimum and then we'll pay you for all the projects you work on. So I think that for me, the companies I'm admiring most right now are the ones that are experimenting. And I think the CEO of Microsoft put this so well when he said, we're just learning through doing at the moment. We actually mm-hmm. don't know what the outcome is. We don't know what the end state is, but we're going to experiment. We're going to see whether it works and then we're going to do it. Because the important point here, Scott, is that before the pandemic, we had very little data on the productivity of knowledge workers when they were based at home. There was a very important study that lots of people talked about at the very beginning of the pandemic. But the challenge of that study it was, was the, it is that it was with call center workers. That's not a knowledge-based job. It's actually quite a routine job. And in fact, companies like British Telecom have been putting call center workers from working from home for decades. That's not really the same as knowledge workers. So as we came into the pandemic, we actually didn't know whether knowledge workers could work from home and still being product and still be productive. And so we are learning so much at the moment about that simple question. Can knowledge workers be productive at home? And this is this is the thing that I'm so fascinated by right now. Given that this is the first time that everybody in the world, even beyond the world wars and stuff, went through the same experience at the same time, and even though there may be this refreezing within the context of the workplace, our value sets and worldview may have changed. What, what are you thinking about that? What are you observing in that front? I, I totally agree. I think that it was an astonishing act. And I, you might remember that I wrote a Harvard Business Review uh, article in June of 2021 that was actually the, f- the front cover of Harvard Business Review. And it was called, I'm, I'm, looking at, I'm looking at it, it's sitting next to me to remind myself, it's called Doing Hybrid Right. And I, I opened that article with Fujitsu. And the reason I did that is I, I've been uh, working in Japan for many years. It's a country I love and, and go to quite a lot. And for years, I'd been standing up in front of big Japanese multinationals saying, you've got to change the way you work. You've got to change the way you work. And they'd say, no, 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 we we absolutely can't. It's really important. People have got to be in the office all the time. They've got to work really long hours and so on and so forth. But actually, Fujitsu moved 60,000 people out of their Tokyo offices into their home in two weeks. It's an astonishing thing. And of course, as you rightly say, it happened all over the world. I was just talking to some colleagues in India this morning, and and they're they're in exactly the same position. So it was a collective experience. And the reason I think I find that so astonishing is that we're all now asking the same questions, you know, Mm -hmm. the questions of, well, how how do we now make this work? And every day, some new 
incredible insight comes up. So let me just share, you know, the couple of two or three that we've just heard in the last week or two. Uh, one from Microsoft. Uh, they've been looking really carefully at the data on on meetings because they, you know, they can measure that with their team meeting apps. And what they've found is the number of meetings in many companies has doubled. That's pretty wow. astonishing, isn't it? That actually what we yeah. what we did is we had lots of meetings. So, you know, my first thing is get rid of the meetings. The second thing that we learned, and this just came out from a research team only last week, is that we've been asking for some time, can you innovate in a virtual environment? And they did some amazing work where they looked at both people uh, working on on Zoom and Microsoft Teams, but they also looked at people working in in an experimental lab. And what they found is that if you think about innovation, there's two parts of innovation. The first part is actually having ideas, ideation. And then the second part is selecting from those ideas. And what they found was this, that is that ideation is much lower in a virtual meeting. So if you, if the three of us said, okay, let's think of, you know, 10 different things we could do with this amazing podcast, Evolving Leader. Let's think of all the brand extensions we could do. Um, we wouldn't come up with as many ideas as if we were sitting in a room together. However, if we had 12 ideas and then we asked the question, which is the ones we like, we could do that perfectly well on Zoom. So the question that the researchers asked is, why is that? And here's what they found. And I'm still sort of buzzing with this because it's so fascinating. What they found is it's to do with eye movement. And and, and I can see that because, you know, I'm sitting looking both at myself, which is really weird. And I'm looking at that little green spot on my computer, which is even weirder. And so my eyes are focusing on one thing. And that actually, it seems as if that really reduces my creativity. Whereas if you were, if the three of us were in my house in Primrose Hill or in your house or in your office, and we were walking around and we were having coffee and we might be walking through Regent's Park and we were moving our eyes around and moving our head around a lot, we would be able to bring in so many more aspects of our of our mind. So, so the point that I'm making is that mu- more of this will be revealed over the coming months. And that's why it's so important that we, we keep an eye on what have we learned, but also that we double back. So, for example, when we knew from Microsoft that the number of teams, the number of meetings had doubled, one of the things I immediately said to all the people I advise and I wrote in my column and I've said in podcasts is, please get rid of at least half your meetings and do it now because that's something that's happening that shouldn't happen. We're doing it because they're so easy. It's so easy to make a Zoom meeting or a Microsoft Teams meeting. That doesn't mean it's a good practice. It's actually a really bad practice. So I think what we're doing now is we're in a learning period where we're both um, experimenting, but in experimenting, we're learning what we've got to stop doing i.e. stop having so many meetings. And actually what we've got to start doing, i.e. if you want to ideate, you're best to do that face-to-face. So fascinating. Makes a lot of sense. Do you think that some of the reason for the doubling of meetings, which by the way feels true, um, is because we've lost the ability to pop in on each other and sort of have the water cooler conversations? 
Yeah. You know, I, it's it's an interesting question, isn't it? And I, I bet that the, that our listeners are... So I'm sort of a, a, a shout out to all our listeners now. Just, you know, have your meetings doubled and and why have they? Because I think that's a really interesting question, Scott. And I've been thinking about this as well. Um, I think part of the reason is it's really easy. I mean, Microsoft and Zoom have made it so easy for us to have a meeting, haven't they? You just press a button. Mm-hmm. So I think the ease has, has certainly been part of it. I think you're right that rather than just you know, popping next door and saying, oh, you know, what do you think about this? As you might in an office, you're saying, oh, let's have a meeting about it. I think the other reason is that because we're doing virtual stuff, we don't have any of the travel time. So this week in London, those of you listening from London know that London is now opening up. We're out and about. We're, you know, so yesterday I I did a presentation for the YPO, actually, which is a wonderful group. And normally, in the last two years, I would have done that on Zoom. And what would have happened is my secretary would have booked it in from, you know, 12 o'clock till one o'clock, and she would have booked in loads of presentations before and loads of Zoom meetings after. Instead of which, I had to get there. So it took me an hour to get there. And it took me an hour to get back. And suddenly, I've got less meetings. And so I, I, I maybe, maybe I'm... You know, this is perhaps might not be the reason. It's certainly not very scientific, Scott, in answer to your question. But I think it's partly because we've stopped moving around. And so we're just back to back. I, I've talked to people who say every single day I have 10 to 12 meetings. In fact, the, I have a, a consulting practice, HSM, and I was talking to the person who leads that. And she said, my partner said to me yesterday, you know, I think you've got at least 60 meetings this week. And she said, oh, no, 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 I haven't. And she looked at her diary and she really did. She really had 60 meetings. Whoa, it's exhausting just to think about it, isn't it? So it, this, is a, this is a process of learning and um, we, we've just got to be adaptive and stop doing things like meetings and start doing things like coming together to do creative stuff, face-to-face stuff, and, and also coming together to have fun. I try every month to think of the word which I think symbolizes where we are on this journey and the word for this month is friendship. That's my that's my word this month. Um, and I'm very fortunate to be uh, working with Bob Waldinger, who's the Harvard professor who is uh, who runs the Harvard study of happiness. You know what makes people happy, and he's very clear that happiness you're happy because you've got friends, and sometimes they're friends at work, and sometimes they're friends at home. But I do think that what we've all missed really is that marvellous thing that keeps us at work, which is I have a friend at work. Mm. I want to take us back to your article in HBR on hybrid working. Um, so what do we take forward from what, you've, what we've learned through this intense experiment? What do we let go of, do you think? I think we let go of the idea that work only comes in one sort of can you know it's it's something that you get up every morning to do and you get to it and you do it and you come back I think that's the bit that we have to let go of now having said that you know for 50% of workers they don't have any choice about where they're located I my my son Dominic uh, during COVID was uh, an accident and emergency doctor so he couldn't say oh oh I've decided not to come into the 
into the ward today because I'm going to work from home. And that's true for lots of people. So we have to be really careful that when we're talking about hybrid work, we have to acknowledge there's a whole bunch of people out there who have no opportunity to change the, the place of work, but they could change the time of work. So they could think more about scheduling or how how they manage their time. But I think I would be really, really upset if we go back to where we were. I, I would, and I think some companies will, and I, I think that's fine. That's their, their their call, and they, as long as they understand the consequences of that. But I would be very disappointed if, in a year's time, all of this, everything that we've learned, has just disappeared, and we're back to where we were. I think there's a real opportunity now to fundamentally ask ourselves: Why do we work as we do? Why do we do it like this? How did this happen? And it happened really because after the Industrial Revolution, when people moved from the farms into the factories, they st- I can see Scott nodding wisely here. The farms and the Industrial Revolution and the farms and the factories, they actually, you know, we they sat by machines all day doing stuff on an assembly line, just as I did in the Terry's factory in York all those years back when I was packing chocolates. Um but actually, those jobs don't hardly exist anymore. I mean, you know, most factories are now you know, automated and people do much more skillful work. So I think this is just a brilliant time for the whole world to ask itself, how do we want to work? Because, you know, it's something that we do, we spend a lot of time doing. For most of us, it's the majority of our time. And as Andrew Scott and I showed in The 100-Year Life, if you live longer, you work longer. And we're predicting that many people will be working into their 70s. And by the way, as we move into a time of high inflation, that's only going to push that further because uh, so few people have uh, have have pensions that are, are linked to inflation. So we'll be working longer. And if you work longer, you have to change the way that you work. And, and we talked about two things in the two books that we wrote together. One was um, the move from a three-stage life, you know, full-time education, full-time work, full-time retirement to a multi-stage life where your life extends and you do many different things. You start your own business, you have a portfolio and so on and so forth. And the other thing we talked about was the importance of intangible assets. I think, you know, often when we think about work, particularly from an HR perspective, we say, well, work is really a place that you earn money. And, and that's why in many HR departments, it's it's the pay and remuneration group who are powerful and large. But actually intangible assets, you know, for example, can I stay productive? Um, can I stay vital in terms of my health? Can I learn how to transform myself? Turns out that these are as important, if not more important than tangible assets. And that's why so many people are now saying, I need to have a way of working which keeps me healthy. I need to have a way of working where I can sleep eight hours a night. I need to have a way of working where I can spend time with my friends and not have it disrupted all the time because you've asked me to come back into the office when you tell me I didn't have to. So I think, you know, the reason why people are asking for flexibility now, and we're seeing that in the great resignation, is because they need that flexibility because they need to be autonomous. They need to have some measure of autonomy that helps them make the day-to-day choices which keeps them healthy and happy and vital and productive. 
Hi, Phil Kirby here, producer of the Evolving Leader podcast. And at the time of recording this, we're only a few weeks away from the Wimbledon Tennis Championships. Back in Season 2, John and Scott spoke to Wimbledon CEO Sally Bolton, who during her first 12 months in the job had to take the decision to cancel the tournament for the first time since World War II due to the COVID-19 pandemic. This is definitely an episode to add to your Evolving Leader playlist, and I'll add a link in the show notes. So as organizations experiment, um, and and like as you say, employees are looking for autonomy and, and looking at the realities of working longer and all the complexities of their lives, what should companies be doing to support the well-being of their of their teams what are what are some of the things that should they should be focusing on well i'd say if you remember you know when i talked scott about the four stages um the last group i the last stage was about act you know act and create and i talked about three groups there um one is the leaders one is the managers and one is employees themselves. And we know that in terms of well-being, there are things that each one of those groups can do to make a massive difference to people's well-being. Um, if I start from a leader, the way that a leader impacts on the well-being of their, of their organization is through role modeling. So if they role model, you know, working all the time, not eating well, not doing any exercise, uh, traveling all the time, never sleeping, that really sets up an expectation that this is what you have to do to be successful. So I think all of us or all of you as leaders need to ask yourself, what message, what's the story that I'm giving in terms of the way that I'm that I'm conducting my own life in terms of my own well-being. And by the way, you know, some of the most successful leaders during the pandemic were, were those that were empathic, you know, that talked about their own situation, that, that said, you know, I'm finding this really difficult, you know, I'm feeling pretty lonely here in, in my house on my own. And that level of disclosure and created a real sense of authenticity. People said, you know, I think I... I, I know where this person's coming from. So I think the leaders play a really important role. I think managers have been really the bedrock of well-being because managers who have helped, uh, who have spoken to people on a one-to-one basis, who have understand the issues that they face, have understood the challenges they face, that's really been helpful in terms of individuals' well-being. But I think thirdly is what we did ourselves as employees. And we know what helps us to feel great and happy. And and let's just remind ourselves what those are. Some of them are to do with health itself. And that's three things. We all know what those things are. It's about exercise. It's about sleeping eight hours a day. And it's about eating decent food. And actually, by the way, one of the reasons I'm so keen on flexible working is that it, it gives you space to do all of those things. And the second thing that we know that makes us happy is friendship. And so we we know that lots of people felt lonely during uh, the pandemic. We know actually that it's the 16 to 26 year olds who are the loneliest group. So how we support and help them. This is the group that are desperate to get back to the office. And you can see why, because they want to see their friends again. You know, they want to have coffee. They want to do all the things that we all did when we were, we were that age. Um, and so I think, you know, those three groups, the leaders, the managers and employees themselves, us, ourselves, individuals can all play a role in our in supporting others well-being, but also in, in helping 
ourselves. And just one last point on that, Scott, and it's really about this question of community. Um, I've in all of not in all my books, but certainly in the last three books, I've talked about social capital. I've talked about networks and connections and friendships, and you know that's a really important part of our our well being. You know how we reach out to others, how we make ourselves available to others, the sort of friendships that we're prepared to build, um, and the way that we reach out not just to people who are just like us, but also to a much more diverse group of people who could give us a sense of who we could become. You know this idea of the possible self. Uh, the reason you think you could do something else is that you see in your broader network of friends and associates people who are doing some of the things that you'd like to do. Mm-hmm. And that, that just as at, I wrote a, a piece for MIT Sloan about this just a month ago, where I said, you know, the drivers of change at the moment are individuals saying, I've seen another way of living and I want to do it because I've seen other people do it. And organizations saying, oh, I've looked at what our competitors are doing and I've seen they're doing something different and I need to do that as well. I, the first movers, be they individuals or be they companies, are being watched with a great deal of interest at the moment because there's a whole followership, you know, building around them. So do you think it's time or do you think organizations should reconsider freezing again? I know it's not an intentional uh, move, but just to kind of keep their awareness because you, you're a believer that you can't face the future by extrapolating from the past. What do you think are the most dangerous assumptions we might be making right now to leave untested? Well, I think, you know, one of the most dangerous assumptions is we can just, like an elastic band, just flip back to how we were. I don't think, I think we've been through too much, both in terms of the wonder of it and also the trauma of it. It's been very traumatic Mm. for some people. And I don't think we can just flip back. So it's really important that leaders now... uh, begin to see that it is episode two or what I ever said before, a series, you know, a series mm. two, episode three, that there's there's a lot more to come. And although, you know, using the notion of freeze, unfreeze, refreeze, um, companies will refreeze and it's right and proper they do so. You, you don't want to have a company which is constantly changing. It's not the dynamics of that are very difficult for individuals and for managers. So it's a perfectly reasonable thing that, they begin to refreeze, that they begin to set in place the practices and process and norms and culture that will help them stay productive over the coming coming years. And of course, we're facing some pretty brutal times, actually, with regard to the, to the world right now. But I don't think that time of refreeze is yet. I, I really don't. I think there's still, you know, I keep thinking, I don't really need to talk about this anymore. I don't really need to write about it anymore. And then I hear you know, Microsoft saying, oh, by the way, the number of of uh, of, t- of meetings has doubled, or I hear from a, a marvelous bunch of researchers, oh, by the way, it looks as if you, if you don't move your eyes, you don't ideate. And I think until those bubbles stop, you know, thinking about, you know, the, the milk on the, the milk that you're, that's bubbling away on the stove, until those bubbles stop, I, I don't think one can really say, okay, it's a done deal. And even then, companies, as they refreeze, I think we'll have to refreeze around the notion that learning and agility and adaptability is part of what they are. They they, they freeze as agile, adaptive organizations. Mm. 
Yeah. And I, I wonder too, it seems to me that the lines between industry are blurring. So the competition for talent is widening and meaning that if one organization tries to snap back to old realities, they're going to find out if they can do that because their competitors or even non-traditional competitors might be more progressive. So I love what you're saying about baking in an agility into what that looks like. I totally agree, Scott. And one of the one of the pieces of advice I've given to the companies that I'm advising right now is when you look at what's happening in your marketplace, don't just look at your competitors because that's not where your most talented uh you know, people are looking, they're actually just looking at companies that use their skills, and that might not be in your group. So for example, investment banking, Um, we at London Business School, uh, our MBA students historically go into investment banking, but quite a lot are now starting their own business. So Goldman isn't isn't you're not it's, it's not another investment bank that you're competing Mm. with on talent. It's actually, you know, people starting their own business and, and wanting to build something special and extraordinary for themselves. So I think you're absolutely right that if you just focus on your own sector, you're in danger of forgetting that your most talented people will be looking across the whole universe to find something that suits suits them. I know you're not a futurist, um, but what do you think the world of work is going to look like in 20 or 30 years time, if you could guess? I, I honestly, I think it's really difficult to say. And and actually, I wrote the shift, you know, which is my the book the book that I've written, which which purports to say about the future. And and I went back one of one of the interviews that I I did some time ago. They they asked me to go back to the shift and work out what I got right and what I got wrong. <laughs> and this is this is the truth of it. I got all the pessimistic things right, and I got most of the optimistic things wrong. And, you know, if people don't like my work, it's usually because they think I'm overly optimistic. Uh, and I, you know, I'm a positive psychologist. So I tend to look at the positive of, uh, in our in our world. And, and I tend to think that people are trustworthy and try to do the best they can. And so I'd made that the two, the thing that I've really not been able to predict and still can't is the role of family and the role of neighborhoods. You know, I really felt in the shift, one of the things I said in the shift is that people will want to move back to neighborhoods. They'll want to spend more time with their community. They'll want to spend more time with their family. And I still don't think, I still don't know if we're going to see that. You know, I I think it's very difficult to predict human behavior. But we can predict two things. We can predict demography because we know that you know the people who are going to be alive in 50 years time are already born so we know you know that the 50 year olds are already here so we know how many there are and we know how long they're living so demography is really easy which is why the 100 year life was such an easy book to write because it just said what happens when everyone lives to 100 i think technology is pretty straightforward we know that in general, technology does not destroy jobs. What it does is it changes jobs. So there's a huge focus on upskilling. I think the bit that I find most difficult to predict is the bit about families and communities. Let me give you an example of that. One of the things I've gone on about in all of my books is that uh, part of the reason why women don't get to the top is because when they become mothers, if they become mothers, they do a, a, a disproportionate amount of, of, of childcare, particularly the cognitive care, which is not putting out the 
the rubbish on a Monday morning. It's actually mm. thinking about, you know, is my child learning properly or have they got the right size shoes or whatever. And I thought and wrote at the beginning of the pandemic, I wrote in an MIT column, isn't this an opportunity? Because everyone's at home now. The men are at home, the women are at home for men to step up. And they didn't. And in fact, actually, what we know is that during the pandemic, women did ev- working women did even more dom- of that domestic labor, as, as economists call it, than they did before. And we also discovered, which is truly weird, is that the more the woman earns than the man, the bigger the gap between the woman's wage and the man's wage. And I mean that she earns more, the more domestic labor she did. So that's the bit I, I just don't see. I, these are very slow social trends. If I look at my own MBA students or if I look at my own kids, you're seeing a lot more equality there. But certainly that's playing out very, very slowly. And so I think that the reason I talk about families is that I think that that a, plays a very important role in framing the human resource practices in an organization. So if you work on the assumption that a family is something with a man who works full time and a woman who's got a job and she comes in and out of it, then you can pile work on that man, A, because you think he's only got one source of income for the family, and B, because there's always somebody there to support him. But actually, if you look at most families now, both people are working, and that makes just the weekend as the time when they're not working incredibly difficult because they're doing all that sort of admin and fam- oh, all the stuff that actually a woman would have done, you know, 40 years ago. And so when people say, let's think about a four-day week, I think that's a great idea because remember that most many families now have two sources of income. So if you actually think about how you balance work between each other, and I know that there's all sorts of families who are doing that right now. So I think, sorry, it's a very long-winded answer to a very straight and obvious, not obvious, but a great straight question. I think it's really difficult to predict what's going to happen to families and communities. The other bits I think are pretty predictable. We'll get older. Uh, The UK will get older. Japan will get older. Uh, Nigeria will stay very young. Um, We'll have to, you know, social mobility will become more important. Immigration will become more important. So demography, we can we can we can talk easily about. We're going to work until we're 70. I think we can talk about technology, although we're not entirely sure about how fast we adopt it. But the actual technologies, the, the, the developments are there, you know, PwC, Accenture, uh, all used um, virtual reality uh, this year to bring in, to induct their their candidates into those companies. So there's a lot of experimentation going on about the metaverse and virtual reality and so on. It's the families and communities that I find most difficult to predict. So Linda, as we wrap up, um, how can we get in touch with you? How can people reach you? Oh, well, I would love people to reach out to me, Scott. And, and here's, here's two ways. Um, I'm in LinkedIn. So just say hi to me in LinkedIn or and come to my website www.lindagratton Linda with a Y Linda Gratton L-Y-N-D-A and you'll find all sorts of resources there including uh, a blueprint about how to do this which you can download for free you can also of course buy the book from any bookshop or if you want to listen to it as an audiobook Scott, I actually narrated it 
myself. It's something I'm never going to do again, by the way. <laughs> it was the worst experience of my life. But anyway, I have done it. So if, if you would like to listen to my voice drolling on for six hours, then please, uh, you can download it on the audiobook. Well, well, as we come to the end of our time, uh, Linda, can we plant a question in our audience's mind about how to think about the future of work? Yeah, I think we can. And the, and the question that I would plant in our audience's mind is, if you had a blank sheet of paper and you didn't know anything about how work got done, and I asked you, I want these tasks to be performed, how would you redesign work to perform those tasks? Forgetting everything you know and all the assumptions you have currently about work. Hmm. That's a, a fascinating question to end on. Mm-hmm. Professor Grattan, Linda, thank you so much for your time today. Yes. It's been fantastic, really enjoyable. Really insightful. Thank you. All right, folks, be sure to order your copy of Redesigning Work today. And until next time, remember, the world is evolving. Are you? <laughs>